0: Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week we talked with Matt Lapore, Strategic Advisor and Legal Counsel at Adamantine Energy, and the former director of the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission. As oil and gas development has grown rapidly in Colorado, so have the controversies surrounding it, and nobody knows those controversies better than Matt. We'll talk about why they arose, how the state responded, and whether it's done a good enough job. We'll also talk about the results of the statewide election, in which Colorado voters rejected a proposal that would have dramatically restricted new oil and gas development. Stay with us. Matt Lepore from Adamantine Energy. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: So Matt, you and I have uh, crossed paths many times, and uh, the first time we crossed paths I think was maybe three or four years ago in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and uh, I've been lucky enough to stay in touch with you since then, working on oil and gas issues. And um, so I've gotten to know you pretty well uh, over that time and um, count myself lucky for it. Can you just tell our listeners briefly a little bit about your background and how you became interested in energy and environmental issues?
1: Sure. Uh, Yes, Argentina, Buenos Aires was the first time I think we met. Uh, I was there in my capacity as the director of the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, Um, and I came to that position because I I have a law degree, and for many years I practiced environmental law at a large Denver law firm, Um, and that that morphed into a position with the Colorado Attorney General's office in about 2009 uh I was recruited there specifically to represent the oil and gas conservation commission and I guess in a in a way kind of fell in love with the commission and with the public service aspect of that and and with oil and gas in Colorado um so I continued to do that for a couple of years went briefly back to private practice um, when the when the director position the director of the agency came open and I applied and here we are
0: great so there's so much interesting history with Colorado oil and gas development. I wish we could spend more time on it. But, um, but we're going to focus, uh, I think on some of those issues that came up in the front range over the last 10 years or so. And with all this development happening, all this oil and gas development happening north of Denver, um, that's really where I think, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think we've seen sort of the largest controversies and the largest debates emerge uh, over oil and gas development in Colorado. So can you talk a little bit about what some of the factors are that have been driving those debates and policy discussions?
1: Yeah, sure. And and you're right. the uh, The controversies have been most pronounced on the front range here as – that horizontal development of the Niobrara shale emerged. I I think a key factor certainly is that there was tremendous population growth happening in that very same area at the very same time that there was this oil and gas surge happening. Um, So Colorado, over the last five or 10 years has been one of the fastest growing states and a great deal of that growth is concentrated in this area, again, just kind of north north of Denver in communities like Erie and Broomfield and uh, on up into Weld County, exactly the same places where the uh, oil and gas development was happening. So there was kind of that, that conflict, if you will. I think a- another contributing factor is that horizontal development there's sort of a mixed blessing. You can put a lot of wells on a single pad and from that single pad reach a great deal of acreage using the horizontal wells, which, which means there are fewer surface locations, less surface disturbance. But it also means if you happen to be proximate to that large pad, it's it's more disruptive. So you sort of have this concentration of the impacts, and I think that was a factor
0: yeah and so for for those listeners who aren't particularly familiar with oil and gas development, you know so called conventional development, we would see a vertical well drilled uh, straight down into the earth, and uh, a single well pad would be at the surface where that well would operate but increasingly, as companies have sought to um, gain efficiencies with their operations and also to disturb uh less surface area. Um, In many parts of the country, including the front range of Colorado, we see 10, 20, or more wells on a single pad where companies can drill down from a single surface location and then out uh, to reach the rocks that they uh, are trying to reach deep underground.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Again, you have fewer individual oil and gas locations and a smaller number of these more concentrated locations.
0: Right. And when those concentrated locations appear close to population centers, um, then that's really where we've seen a lot of these conflicts emerge along the front range. And so um, what are some of the measures that um, you and the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, when you were the director, what are some of the measures that the COGCC took, um, along with the Department of Public Health and Environment and the governor's office, to try to address some of these concerns? And there's a bunch bunch of things we could talk about. I know we won't be able to get to all of them, but can you highlight a couple for us?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, absolutely, the emergence of the horizontal development hydraulic fracturing you know, kind of set off a, a rash of rulemaking, I suppose, at the commission level uh, to respond to some of the changes and and to the the fact that the development in Colorado was happening in close proximity to a lot of people. I mean, we kind of one of the earlier changes. That Colorado made was a requirement that operators disclose what was being used in the hydraulic fracturing fluid. Um, That was a a great concern to people. They wanted to know what was, you know, being injected underground near them. Um, That rulemaking happened in 2011 and kind of raised the bar. I think we were the third state to require that information, but our requirements went farther than other requirements had gone. 2012 we became the first state to require operators to take groundwater samples before drilling began so that we had a baseline uh, data information about the quality of the groundwater and then operators were also required to sample after they had completed drilling so so we you know could try to see if there had been any impacts in the same year we changed uh, what are called the setback requirements, which govern how far away uh, a new oil and gas location must be from things like houses or schools and, and other features. And at the same time, we greatly increased sort of the notification requirements. That is, operators informing local governments and nearby residents that, hey, you know, we plan to have oil and gas happening near you, and and giving them an opportunity to um, have input into that process. In 2014, the Department of Public Health and Environment, who has jurisdiction over air emissions from oil and gas, adopted a rule requiring operators to monitor methane emission and identify leaking. In methane emissions and, and and repair those leaks. Um, mm-hmm. So really uh, a first in the nation methane emissions rule.
0: And and those methane emissions are largely, you know, the concern over those emissions are, are sort of twofold. One of them is a climate change impact of methane, uh, and the other is uh, the risks of um, ozone formation uh, associated with methane emissions. So there's kind of a local and a global um, environmental concern there
1: yes absolutely right and i think um i think another thing driving some of the controversy over the years has been climate change and the impact of course of fossil fuel uh burning fossil fuels and sort of this conversation around natural gas being a cleaner fuel than coal which is true sort of depending on management of those methane emissions and releases uh during the production phases so was a an effort too to, to capture those emissions and therefore have the climate change benefit.
0: Yeah, so so Matt, you know, during all these rulemakings, um that, that you helped lead and, and and other efforts on behalf of these other uh, departments within the government you know you were really in the hot seat for a lot of these you were a lot of public meetings where there's a lot of you know strong opinions being expressed and um and and a lot of debate happening in a very vigorous manner so with all of these rulemakings, the controversies around oil and gas development on the front range some of them have sort of shifted or or died away and and some of them have increased it seems over the last several years with growing concerns about you know health impacts and proximity to to oil and gas development maybe less concerned about water contamination and, and things that were really on the front burner 6 or 7 years ago so in in your view how successful have these efforts been do you think in addressing the concerns that the public has uh about proximity to oil and gas development
1: uh, it's a great question and and one that's not necessarily easy to measure i yeah. think um i i think first you're correct that when i first started 2012 uh, as you kind of alluded to, there was a lot of concern about groundwater impacts. Um, and I think through a combination of rulemaking and um, communication about uh, how fracking occurs and how construction of wells occurs, you know we we hear less of that, and we have strong kind of spill reporting rules, and spills do happen, but we have good rules around that there is continuing concern about air emissions and I think that that is a function to some extent of uncertain science. Um, Uncertain science, you know, I think is just part of the equation here. Uh, There's ongoing research and we'll have better data and, you know, you can make better regulatory decisions when you have better data, but that is a concern. I think COGCC was very successful in increasing Sort of transparency uh, about what the agency does and what operators are doing and how it gets done, as well as increasing accessibility for the public. I, I think even 10 years ago, this just wasn't in the public mind, and now it's very much in their mind. And there's a greatly increased demand for the public to participate and to be able to access data and so forth. And I think. The COGCC was, was pretty successful, has been pretty successful in creating that. Yeah. Um, the other area that remains probably front burner at this point in time is the extent to which local governments get to regulate or get a say-so, in particular in where oil and gas facilities are located. Historically, most of that happened at the state level. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the citizens, for maybe a couple of different reasons, feel like you know that should be more of a local decision, and 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 some local governments feel that it should be more of a local decision. So, so that is probably the, the focal point of the debate at this point in time.
0: Yeah, and so that question of proximity uh, of oil and gas wells and, and control over where oil and gas wells can be sited that's related to this recent uh ballot measure that was on the ballot a couple months ago in Colorado um that's called proposition 112 and it's one of the main reasons I wanted to to talk to you today is to to get your take on the results of that um ballot measure uh so prop 112 for for those that that are familiar with it it would have increased the setback distance from new oil and gas development to 2,500 feet from a variety of locations, including uh, homes, schools, uh, but also uh, small waterways, including creeks and creek beds. So it would have put major constraints on the industry going forward. Um, you know, there are different estimates out there, but I, I think they all agree that at least 50% or more of private lands would essentially be off limits to new oil and gas development if that ballot measure had passed. So as it turned out, um, uh, the measure did not pass, which means setbacks were not increased. Uh, The vote was 56% to 44% statewide. And um, so what lessons did you take from the result of that election? And and how does it inform policymaking and public opinion going forward?
1: Well, first, I think it tells us that the electorate to a certain extent, you know, was able to sort through and understand that that proposition one twelve went too far for the reasons you described, and it really was the other features, uh, not houses and schools, so much as the other features that had been included in one twelve, like irrigation ditches and intermittent streams, that would have resulted in so much uh, acreage being off limits to development. And of course, there's kind of a policy question in there about, you know, whether a 2,500 foot setback is appropriate for a school, and equally so for an irrigation ditch. And you know, I sort of think the answer to that is is no. Um, and the, one of the reasons ballot measures are a kind of a clumsy tool for this kind of uh, policy decision. But there are other interesting things to to think about and talk about with respect to the outcome. You know, one of which the percentage spread there is, is notable, as you said, Daniel. At the same time, more than a million voters voted for the setback and the, the proponents of the setback operated on, on a shoestring budget.
0: Right, it's just worth pointing out. Maybe you were uh, you're getting to this, but the the industry did put uh, substantial resources uh, into defeating it. I I don't know the exact number, but I think it was in the tens of millions of of dollars. Correct?
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Um, I I don't know the exact number either, but more than thirty million and perhaps mm-hmm. close to forty million. And so, I mean, you could you could look at it. One way to look at it is, you know, the proponents needed to spend about seventy cents per vote, while the Oil and gas industry spent something like four hundred dollars per vote, you know, to get a no vote. Wow, um, interesting. And you know that there's that's not perfectly the right way to look at it for a lot of reasons, but um, it, you know, industry spent a lot of money to defeat the measure. The other very interesting thing about the outcome was that most of the communities in which there is substantial oil and gas development today voted against the proposition. So Weld County, for example, which by far has the highest number uh, of, of production, the highest output of oil, as well as the most wells and well starts and all of those statistics voted overwhelmingly against 112, as did Garfield County, which is the second highest producing county and so forth. The counties that voted strongly in favor, Boulder County where there's some but not much oil and gas development. Denver County voted in favor of it. And then lots of counties that have ski resorts. (laughs) So yeah, I don't know that there's a one-to-one correlation there, uh, but it was was interesting. So big takeaway is uh, there's still concern among the population about proximity of this large-scale industrial development to homes and schools and population centers.
0: Right. And that concern is, you know, continuing to play out at the policy level, right? So just a couple of weeks ago, I think the COGCC adjusted the way that it measures setbacks between new oil and gas wells in schools, which has been a you know particular area of concern in, in some parts of the front range. So can can you just briefly touch on what that change was that the COGCC made and um, why it's important? And then, you know, in, in your opinion, was it an appropriate change?
1: Sure. Um, so, so fundamentally, um, I, I guess maybe three years ago, uh, citizen groups started saying, "Listen, Colorado, you have a one thousand foot setback from schools. You know, which was which is pretty good. That was a rule that was put in place in 2013, and and actually, no operator had ever asked for an oil and gas location closer than a thousand feet from a school after that rule was put in." But the concern was that that measurement happened from the school building itself and not, say, the playground or the sports field or, you know, maybe the, the, uh, the outbuilding. And so the citizen concern was, hey, this is where kids are outdoors and they're playing. And, you know, really, you should measure from the boundary of the of the schoolyard. And in essence, that's what the new rule did. The new rule requires an identification of a school facility that is not just the building but it is those other parts that are you know part and parcel of a school um, such as the playgrounds and, and the sport fields. So the measurement now is taken from that outer boundary, if you will, um, and that's that's really the essence of the rule. Um, there's some you know notice requirements and so forth, so that the school board has an opportunity to say, wait a second, you know, you should measure it from over here, or even wait a second, we have a school planned in the future. I think it goes out three years, so if there's a school to be built within the next three years, that it, it's kind of captured by the rule. Mm-hmm. I think it was a very appropriate rule. I think it was overdue. I think industry was a little bit stingy about engaging in the conversation earlier. And the new General Assembly session just started here in Colorado. Um, it will be interesting to see whether they look at the rule and find it sufficient or whether they want to do something differently legislatively. But I think the rule that emerged was the result of the the rules actually proposed by a citizen advocacy group here in Colorado. Uh, the, um, the agency supported that rule. Uh, the proposal was made while I was still the director. We supported the rule. We went to industry and said, listen, you know, we need to do something here. You need to get on board. And uh, eventually the industry was um, supportive of the rule that was passed.
0: Right. So that's so interesting. Matt, you, you just mentioned the uh, new composition of the legislature in Colorado. And there's also a new governor, Jared Polis, who's been outspoken on oil and gas issues in the past. What, what's the environment like now politically for oil and gas development? Is there a lot of legislative activity coming down the pipe? Um, and you know, what do you think that means for the industry and for, um, for the prospects in the in the coming years?
1: I do think that it will be an active year in the legislature and in the administration as it relates to oil and gas. Um, so maybe the most significant change is that both chambers of the legislature, the the House and the Senate, are both controlled by Democrats now, which has not been the case um, for the last four years. And a lot of Oil and gas legislation was proposed in the democratically controlled House over the last four years and never made it through the Republican controlled Senate. Mm -hmm. So I think the prospect now with with uh, Democrats having control of both is that um, those oil and gas bills have a much higher chance of getting passed and then put on the governor's desk. And I do think, candidly, I think there has been uh, frustration built up uh, in the legislature, certainly on the Democratic side, sort of about you know an inability to pass anything. Industry kind of going to its Republican supporters in the Senate and getting lots of these things um, killed, including uh, things that many might find uh, to be sensible, like a school setback, which was proposed and was shot down. Uh, So there's there's definitely that dynamic um, in play. Everybody is very mindful of the Proposition 112, and yes, it was defeated, but yes, it was not that uh, close. It got a lot of votes. People are still mindful of the the tragic fire and explosion in Firestone, Colorado, uh, that was associated with a gas line from a well that was improperly abandoned and led to this explosion of a home and the death of two two citizens. The um, uh, the homeowner and uh, and another person that was with him at the home in the home at the time, right. so that's on people's minds. Governor Polis uh, is a Democratic governor um, who, in two thousand fourteen, uh, provided substantial financial backing to a proposal to have a two thousand foot setback. Um, he eventually backed away from that setback, but he has been outspoken in saying that local government should have more control around the siting of oil and gas facilities. So I think, again, that's that will be the focus, the major focus. Um, The legislature clearly uh, wants to make sure that oil and gas happens safely, uh, that citizens' health and environments uh, are protected when oil and gas development happens. So I don't I don't think it will go as far as a 2,500 foot setback or any kind of ban. Um, I, I think people appreciate the continuing importance of fossil fuels to our economy and our way of life and so forth. But of course, it should be done safely and responsibly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think the focus will be on local control and protecting public health.
0: Yeah. And so you're gonna be staying active in this space, I know, uh, in the months and years to come at Adam and Teen Energy, where you're strategic advisor and legal counsel. So can you briefly tell us what you're thinking about these days, what you're working on? I know you were in South Africa recently. Uh I'd love to hear about that trip, maybe over a beer later, but um uh, you know, what are you thinking about? What are you interested in?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, I'll take you up on the beer offer anytime. Um, and I think you'll actually be in Colorado soon. So maybe we'll get that done. Um, yeah, so I, um, was pleased to have the opportunity to go to South Africa. Um, I was, uh, engaged with a provincial or kind of state level government in South Africa, uh, it's quite interesting, really, in South Africa, as in most of the rest of the world besides the United States, the, the minerals, the oil and gas is owned by the nation, by the federal government, and the federal government makes the decisions about development. And the state government, the provincial government with whom we were meeting, is, is basically concerned about how that's going to play out and what that means to them and what the impacts will be and how many trucks traps there will be and whether the water will become polluted and -hmm. what they do about air pollution. And so they are engaging us uh, and others to help them think through and identify tools that are available to them to help regulate that development, should it happen. I mean, I have to start by saying there's there's a question of whether or not the development will happen uh, in the Western Cape of South Africa, but the question that that this entity is grappling with is if it does, then how do we how do we make it you know most manageable, uh, and and least impactful to our citizens? So very much a parallel universe, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, mm-hmm. uh, happening halfway around the world. Um, and you know, I am very pleased to be able to be kind of part of that conversation with them.
0: Yeah. Well, Matt, thank you so much for for telling us about all all the stuff you're working on and your views on you know oil and gas in Colorado over the last several years it's really fascinating and um I'm looking forward to seeing you soon in Colorado and asking you many more questions over drinks uh, about all this stuff but um but as we close out uh, I'd love to ask you the same question that we ask all of our guests which is what's at the top of your reading stack so what's something that you've read or seen or maybe listened to over the last uh, few weeks and months that that you think our audience would really appreciate
1: well I'm I'm reading sapiens which I find fascinating account of the uh, anthropological evolution of our species yeah. um, just just an interesting assessment of that, and one that uh, casts aside sort of many long long standing or long held uh, views of our evolution so it's it's worth a read um, in the fiction category. I have gone back to one of my very favorite authors, Cormac McCarthy. Um, and I'm reading Blood Meridian, which is, a an earlier work by him yeah. uh, that is set in far West Texas and Mexico and, uh, beautifully written, but also sort of a, a violent, often very violent and sort of brutal account of that time in, in that place. But he is, he's just a, a beautiful writer.
0: Great. Yeah. One fiction, one nonfiction. So, oh. um, yeah, excellent. All right, Matt Lepore from Adamantine Energy, thank you so much for uh, sharing your, your wisdom on oil and gas, fiction, nonfiction, and uh, everything in between.
1: Thanks, Daniel. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. We'd love to hear what you think, so please rate us on iTunes or leave us a review. It helps us spread the word. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future, RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Kate Peterson, with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.